Welcome to episode 14 of F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen with host Matt Payne. Uh, today's guest is Hillary Younger. Um, she's out of Tasmania, which is, sounds like an amazing place. Um, just listening to her talk about her passion for f- photographing that area just makes me want to go visit there right now. Um, man, we, we, co- we talked about some really fascinating topics, and I think you guys are going to like this one. Um, we talked about the connection between um, place and artistic vision and, and how those things are interrelated and, and, and how, how that informs her, her artistic vision and, and just the state of landscape photography and, and what's, what's happening with it right now. It was a great uh, conversation. And I, I think um, probably one of the best ones we've done on the podcast. So I think you guys are going to like it. Um, please reach out, uh, email, Instagram, Facebook, whatever, uh, Matt Payne photo, um, or mattpainephotography.com. And, uh, please do leave a review on iTunes, uh, or Stitcher. Thanks. from what people are going in at the moment Um, yeah absolutely so uh we're recording just so you know (laughs) um yeah because i don't want you to give all those nuggets up too soon so (laughs) um so uh hillary younger it's great to have you on the podcast thanks for so much for coming on hey thanks man thanks for asking me i appreciate it absolutely um you know i've been um i think i first found you on 500 px uh and I've always really kind of liked your, well, not kind of, I've always really liked your work. Um, as most probably because it's um, similar type subjects that, I, that I'm that i drawn to shoot. But what I like about your stuff is that, A, it's in a part of the world that I've never been to or seen. So it's really sweet seeing it through someone's lens. And then, B, um, I feel like you have a pretty a pretty unique vision. So Yeah, um, I, I think I... I have a few things that um, I, I, for a start, don't even think of myself in so many ways as a photographer. Um, I, I was drawn to photography because I grew up um, basically alone on a horse in the bush, and um, my my love is for the landscape. And so, photography is a medium to share something that's really special to me that I feel. Um, and so, I. I um, I've been drawn to 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 the places and um, to share the things that touch me very deeply. Um, and I suppose where I um, where my photography perhaps is different is also that a lot of those places um, are places that the, most of the rest of the planet doesn't go to much. Um, right. So, so like, and even. When I do go elsewhere, like I have a love of the Himalaya also, and um, but I went to Ladakh and I'd never really seen photos of Ladakh. I went to Ladakh because um, I knew of it as little Tibet. And um, when I spent a year living in Nepal many years ago, I heard about Ladakh and I was going to go there and didn't. And it just festered in my mind for a long, long time. Um, and... 
then a, a guy that I knew, another photographer who was in Mumbai, invited me to ride a motorbike from Mumbai to Leh. Um, just because I was feeling a bit depressed and he was a good friend and he said, hey, you know, just yeah, come do this. <laughs> nice. I thought, well, you know, I could do that. I thought, shit. Absolutely. But, yeah, and I looked at India and I thought, fuck, I could actually do that. I could. I could. <laughs> and then I thought, hang on a minute. I mean, that would be awesome, but, but my photography gear, riding a motorbike from Mumbai to Leh, that's going to be really dodgy. And I thought, actually, what I really want to do, I really want to be in Ladakh. I just want to be in Leh, and I don't really want to ride a motorbike. I want to walk across the mountains. I want to be in that place because it's a really special place. It's it's geographically part of Tibet, but it's politically part of India. So it's the only real part of Tibet that wasn't taken over by the Chinese. Um, huh. and, and so I just had a very – it was a very spiritual um, quest, really. It's, it was um, I'm a Tibetan Buddhist as well, and um, – and I thought, I, I want to go to this place. Um, and, and I want to take photos, but I have no, I'm just going to discover stuff on my way. Um, and, and so that's what I did. I went, um, and my friend who wanted to ride a motorbike wasn't fit enough to do what, what I wanted to do. So they all thought I was completely mad. Like I just, um, <laughs> you were in Ladakh, they thought, who is this crazy Inji woman? You know, like, you know. <laughs> In Asia, or, or certainly in Nepal, um, all, all Westerners were called Inji's. Doesn't matter whether you're English or American or you know French or whatever. They just called us all Inji's, and usually they called us all crazy Inji's because you know we're crazy um, in many ways from their point of view. So I'm this crazy Inji woman. Um, that, but also I'm super crazy because I'm a woman travelling on my own. And I said to the, when I started to organise what I needed. Um, I needed to. I could. I can't just go like in Nepal. You can walk, and you don't need to carry very much because you can go from village to village, and you can get food along the way. You can get um, accommodation along the way. Um, in Ladakh, you can't. Ladakh has a total population of about 150,000 people, so it's very sparsely populated. It's basically a high altitude desert, um, so you've got to carry everything you need, and because it's at high altitude. That becomes really difficult because of weight at high altitude. So you, you take ponies that carry all your food and tents and all that sort of stuff. So I was organising all of this with this um, this Ladaki guy and, and he ran tours, but I said to him, like, you know, I'm a photographer, so I'm a landscape photographer, so I can't go on a tour. I said, I, I can't. I'll be, I'll be out taking photos when everyone else is having breakfast and I'll be out taking photos when everyone else is having dinner and I will want to stop in different places and I'm going to get up in the middle of the night and, you know, I'm going to be inhospitable. And um, <laughs> so... That sounds about right. Yeah. So he said, he said, okay, you know, like um, he was really good in the end, but he obviously thought I was crazy and I think... You know, but I, I organized, so I organized these six ponies and um, and I had a cook who was also my guide and he organized all the food and um, and then I had a pony man who, who, you know, took care of all the ponies and then there was the three of us and the other two, the cook and the, the pony man, really spoke very, 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 very limited, if not no English. Like, And I had a little Ladakhi phrase book, um, so, so which I gradually learned to, to quite quickly actually to say various things so that we could communicate. Um, but we went for six weeks across the Wow. The so we crossed. How, how long ago was this? This was in uh, 2011. Oh, okay. So that was one of my first major expeditions. And, and I had seen no photographs of Ladakh. So what we would do, we, we crossed like, 
And the dark isn't like Nepal. In Nepal, I can walk for four weeks and cross one 18,000-foot pass. You know, I can walk up a valley like I would walk up the Masyandikola, cross over the Thorongla Pass, over the Annapurnas, and then walk down the Kaligandaki four weeks, you know, or three, four weeks. One high pass. In Ladakh, in six weeks, I cross 12 18,000-foot passes. Um, so it's it's a lot more mountainous. It's a lot more complicated, and, and it's a lot a lot of it is you're walking at high altitude most of the time. Um so, yeah, and you haven't seen it. So you walk all day um, and then in the evening, like, you'll get to where you're going to camp at maybe, um, you know, when there's a couple of hours of daylight left. So then I would just put up my tent and I would just take off again and walk for usually an hour, up to an hour, and just pick, like, because you get aware of where the sun is and where it's rising and setting and where the Milky Way is and all of that sort of stuff and and also what the terrain that you're in, like, where you end up camping. So... If there is a river around, if there's a valley, if there's mountains, if so what vague, you might look and think, okay, if I go up in that direction, hopefully there'll be a composition up there. Hopefully <laughs> or there'll be right. something that I like, you know. And so then I would just take off um, and, and, and then find something. So everything you're doing on the fly, everything you're doing totally. And then, you know, but the thing is that day after day, for six weeks, you're sleeping in a tent, you're sleeping on the ground, you're really not talking to anyone much because no one speaks your language, um, and you're not running across anyone anyway much by way of people, and so you get a deep, deeper and deeper and deeper connection to that place that you walk Absolutely. Like, like for me, a lot of people drive to a location, hop out of their car, take a photo, hop back in and go to the next one. Um, I can do that, but my preference, you don't feel the land. And my, right. my, my, the meaning in my photography, like one of the differences to me between a photo on a calendar, that's like a chocolate box photo, you know, like it's, it can be a technically <laughs> photo, all the leading lines in the world, it can have beautiful colours, it can have, but it doesn't make me cry. It doesn't make me feel awe, it doesn't make me feel deeply. And the, the, the photos that make me feel deeply are generally because the photographer has been feeling deeply. And they've... Right. Con- and you can usually tell. Yeah. 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 Like, so when, when, I, when I, I feel great joy when um, if someone looks at an image that I've taken and their feedback is something like, you took me on a journey. <laughs> I, I went, so, like, or, you know, you, made, you brought me there. Um, I, I also, um, I was talking to a friend of mine last night who came here for dinner and she's a, she's a lady who's a, a learning photographer and she's also a jeweler. And we were talking about multidisciplinary collaboration, which is another thing, it's another avenue and that's where I'm starting to, my mind is starting to come up with all sorts of ideas at the moment because um, my joy is in bringing people to the magic of place. So with my photos, if they can feel deeply from my photos um, the magic of that place, then my hope is that I can inspire them to care more about place Um, because I'm, you know, I I love the landscape and I don't want it to be destroyed. Yeah, you know, I had a very similar conversation about that with Paul Ziska because, you know, I'm a pretty vocal uh, conservationist and, and uh, one of the things that I'm always kind of harping on, I guess, is how I'm always seeing like large groups of people, especially photographers that 
like don't respect the land and and, and the conversation he and I had, which was actually really profound to me, was that that's actually what's great about teaching people is that you can you can teach them to value the landscape, which I think is great. Like that when we had that, I had a revelation. I was like, that's right. That that makes so much sense. Well, that's I, I actually didn't hear that podcast, but I should listen to it because I think Paul Ziska and I are on the, exactly the same page in, in many ways there. Because that's one of the things that I aim to do. Like I am going more and more into the realm of teaching, and what I, not, but it's not just with teaching. It's also with displaying with my art itself. But, but it, in both instances, is to bring people to an appreciation um, of of place and of caring about place, and of not only that, like, and to do that. Um, I mean, I can I can talk to them till I'm blue in the face, and they can say yes and no, and three bags full, and be really with me while I'm there. And then they can go away. And if I, if they haven't changed on the inside, then they will go about their business as they always have. Um, what what I what I feel is necessary is to bring people to a place where they start to develop their own relationship with the landscape. Because when you develop relationship with the landscape. You feel it. And, you know, that, that is when you start to let the landscape affect you in a deep way. Um, Barry Lopez talks about this in his writing. Um, it's, not just, it just does, it's not just photographers, you know. So if people develop a deep relationship to place, then they develop um, a connection like it's their home. Like they develop a connection to a place that they love, to something that is, is, is emotionally important to them. And then they will actually get off their asses and help to protect it as well as trying not to destroy it. You know yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's kind of how I found myself in my journey into photography is I've always, you know, I've, I was born and raised in Colorado and, you know, my parents had me hiking mountains when I was four years old and, and, you know, they always taught me the importance of leave no trace and, you know, pick, pack out all your trash. And, 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 you know, as I grow older and older, like just going into the mountains, like it just it was like a, it's always been kind of a spiritual experience for me. And, and um, you know, like getting getting up there and taking pictures of those areas, it's it's like a it's like you're saying, it's like a deep connection to place that um, I feel like that's. That's one of the best parts about landscape photography. If 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 you if you've experienced that, I feel like not everyone has, but um, I can just tell by the way you're talking about it, you, the passion you have is you've obviously experienced it many times. But I feel like not a lot of people have. Yes, and it's a, it's a challenge to to think about how to run a workshop where you can bring that um, to the people in the workshop. Um, so. Um, and that's an interesting one because people on a workshop are often going for a trophy. They're right, right, right. They want, they want to bring home, you know, a, a trophy image or something like that. And I want to step away a little bit from that in the workshops, in, in how my workshops are evolving. I mean, yes, I want people to go home with, with lovely images, but I also um, – I'm actually – I'm – I'm, I'm, I might have um, mentioned this before um, in the in the sort of stuff that I wrote about what I wanted to talk about, but um, I'm in the process of applying to come to live in the United States, or at least for yeah, yeah. So um, there's a guy who has uh, agreed to sponsor me, um, and 
one of the one of the reasons part of that sponsorship is um, because I had an idea for this. This guy has a, an amazing place, um, a ranch in Northern California near Mount Shasta, which is an incredible area. And there's within an hour's drive, there's a whole lot of really incredible places. There's waterfalls and state parks, Crater Lakes, like only two hours drive away. The Castor yeah. itself is, is, is beautiful and incredible. Um, when I went and stayed, I, I was lucky enough. One of my students is a friend of this guy. And when I was traveling recently, um, when, I did, um, when I was in Oregon, um, and I went out of there and stayed on this ranch for, for a couple of days. And it's one of those places where, like I um, – actually was staying in in my van because I had this crazy living um, sort of uh, van that looked like a lovemobile, but that's a whole other story. (laughs) (laughs) But I woke up in that ranch every morning that I was there and all I heard were the sounds of nature. I did not wake up and hear any human sound or any connected sound, no engines, no nothing like that. There were deer, there were elk, there was mountain lions up there somewhere. There was, you know, an amazing, amazing place. And I came up with this idea to create, oh, hang on, we'll just shut that up. Okay, go away. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No worries. (laughs) And I just hung up on someone. Um, But, um, yeah, I had this idea to create a venue for workshops that would be a place where um, it would be a multidisciplinary workshop venue. So not only photography workshops, but oh yeah, sure workshops from all artistic um, pursuits. So musical, um, jewelry making, um, writing, poetry, um, you know, sculpture, painting, the whole kit and caboodle. Like it's, it would be an amazing place to do Native American flute workshops. It would be, you know, it's a very very beautiful, and you could. You know, travel like within an hour, you can go to all these incredible places. But what I actually felt was to teach photography there in a different way. One was to teach it from the ground up. So have photography courses that actually teach people how to teach, how to do photography, not necessarily just to concentrate on being in this wow photograph type area, but also to bring them into connection with place. Um, right. And to do that, not I mean, like each workshop. Um, the workshop participants, the, the the work that would be produced, I would look at having a show of that work. And then I started to think, well, it would be really interesting to have then a show which was a multidisciplinary exploration into that particular place and to look at the stories that go with that area, Native American stories, as the history of that area, um, and to... Bring together one of the things that we um, are inundated with. We're inundated with incredible visuals at the moment. Landscape photography has become sometimes this thing where these images have to have some ultra wow factor. You know, there has to be, you know, three lightning bolts and a rainbow um, coming from a thundercloud with a mountain in the background, um, you know, and then, then that, that might hit the spot, you know. like. And I wanted to get away from that back to place, back to the magic of the actual place, but also... In making, in getting people to feel deeply, to actually come, bring something, bring a place to people in more than just their visual sense. Bring a place to people in um, in in all of their senses, in a, a multidisciplinary show. So you would have music, you would have words, you would have texture. So they would feel it, see it, hear it, um, and so they actually that pr- place is brought to them. 
in in a way that will be to me i think a very powerful um a very powerful way and that hopefully then even people that can't physically get to those places can start to develop that connection and to have that place brought to them in a way that makes them feel deeply so yeah. no that sounds amazing I, I i think that yeah i think you're onto something there um it's funny as you were talking about that i was like i feel like i've seen something like that before and then i remember there's a uh netflix i think it was no it was amazon they have a, a kevin bacon uh series on uh on there it's called i love dick um it was a it's about this feminist um but he, he this kevin bacon's character he runs this like art institute in the middle of nowhere in texas and and it's kind of the same thing like he invites people from all types of art disciplines and they come there to get inspired and experience what it's like to be in that kind of landscape. So that's, that's it's funny you're mentioning that because I just like, oh, I think I've seen something kind of like that. Although the premise of the show had really nothing to do with art. It was all about feminism, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'm intrigued by the titles, you know. My brain was doing flips then, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's actually it's a great show. But I, I like your idea. I think that has a lot of um, a lot of uh, traction. I was talking to um, uh, Aaron Babnik a couple months ago, and she said it might have already happened. But this summer, there's like a um, in a, in Acadia, Maine, they're doing something kind of similar to that, where they're going to bring people from all kinds of disciplines to to um, to do like an art exhibit, but also like a lot of lectures and stuff like that. It sounds like a really fascinating idea to to bring together people from different artistic disciplines and yeah, and get their interpretation on us on the similar subject or experience. That's right, and this would be hopefully. I mean, I'm I'm hoping that there will be collaborations come out of this because the the step further that or the step that different, I suppose that that what the idea that I have goes is that you get all of these different disciplines. And you explore a place, with, mm -hmm. so that um, it is about a place. So, and that, um, like I had the interesting discussion I had last night was this um, this artist that I talked about who does photography and jewelry. She is also an incredible, um, incredibly accomplished outdoors person. Like she did oh, yeah, sure. a hundred and sixteen day walk um, around New Zealand. Um, nice. I'm jealous. Yeah, um, she, she's a, you know she's a mountaineer as well. She's an amazing woman, um, and we will probably do collaborations together. But she had this exhibition where she brought her jewelry, which comes from the textures of the actual landscape that she's in. Oh, cool. She, she also photographs. She has the jewelry there, but she also photographs it in in context, and she also is very much into getting under the skin of a place and she, and in the photograph in the um exhibition she had she explored that place it, it all came from a, a a residency she did a place called cradle mountain in tasmania and she someone came in to the exhibition this woman and walked around it and and really studied it and then she burst into tears and when my friend talked to her she said she said you have brought cradle mountain into this place wow What's her What's her friend's name? My friend's name is Olivia Olivia Hickey. She's um yeah, and you should interview her too. She's she <laughs> <laughs> cool. But she's very beautiful. She's from New Zealand originally. She lives in Tasmania here also. Um, but I, I we are actually developing a very strong friendship, and also will hopefully 
develop collaborations. Like she's one of the people that I would like to come and teach a workshop when I'm in Mount Shasta. Um, you know, so because I think um, that depth, like you say, there's a lot of people. Landscape photography is becoming more and more and more popular. But one of the issues that I have, I suppose, with it, I mean, I'm happy that people take a photograph and get into that and get get it get out into the outdoors and and sure. you know, go out of the cities and you know, like do that. I mean, I I was brought up out of the city. I you know, it's it's. Um, um, but the thing that um, I find more and more is that there is still a huge gap that people have between themselves and the natural world, um, between them being able to fully feel it and to appreciate it and to make it about that place and not about themselves. Mm. A lot of landscape photography I feel at the moment is someone going, you know, like this whole thing with the, with the Insta selfie business, you know. Yeah. Is, here's me in this place and here's me in this place and here's this amazing photo I took of this place. Um, and what I, I, I would love to do is to um, get people to go that extra step into, into um, leaving their own selves or leaving their own ego, I suppose, um, a little bit behind and and taking the step into the place itself, I suppose with a greater humility um, than I see at the moment. Um, so do you see um, do you see a relationship between um, people's ability to connect with place and their um, the development of their their style or their personal style? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's yeah. Um, and it's really interesting because that's again that's the difference between the chocolate box and something that moves you deeply. Um, my, when I teach photography, actually, um, it's about I mean, or when I do photography, it's for me, it's a go, me going into place and feeling it, and then letting that feeling direct what I want to share about it. Um, so mm. that feeling direct direct me in whatever way um and um the very first time i had an exhibition um it was with three guys from tasmania who were actually three of tasmania's leading landscape photographers um and tasmania has a has a pretty strong tradition of landscape photography and i i was very very lucky in that one of them who i just pestered because he was at the market and i was young and new and you know and, <laughs> <laughs> I'd actually, I was was when I, I first learned to to to, um, to actually process my images. Um, I I was taking, I knew nothing about computers, and I I was so in, you know, I, I'd learned, grown up with film, and then I got a digital camera, and I went and started taking digital photos, and I couldn't process the damn things. So I had all these raw images on my computer, and that was, <laughs> and, and I didn't know how to, I, you know, I only just knew about knew how to turn a turn a computer on, let alone know anything about Photoshop. And um, finally, someone saw this guy saw one of my images on on a friend's computer. He looked this guy, the boyfriend that I had that had uploaded them, and he said, "Who took that photo?" And I said, "I did." And this was a professional photographer, and he said, "I've been trying to take a photo of it was a deciduous beach that we have here up in the Alpine areas," and and he said, "I've been trying to take a photo of, of that all my life." That's like that, and he said, "I still can't." Wow. <laughs> And I said, well, that's a raw image because I can't process the damn thing. (laughs) (laughs) 
and he said he would teach me, which was really cool. And so he taught me, and then, and that was really really funny because then we went out um, one morning to shoot, and he said, "Okay, oh, what we'll do today?" He said, "We'll shoot in in the morning or tomorrow." We were setting it up because we're doing a dawn shoot. He said, "We'll go out and we'll shoot." And then the photos, we'll, we'll pick one of the photos that you, you take and we'll, we'll, we'll process it and we'll print it and we'll take it from go to woe all in one day and you can see it actually in print. You know, that's what wow. I I had never printed a photo before on from yeah. camera. You know, I was, and I was so lucky to have this guy do this with me, you know. Anyway, so we went out. But the funny thing was, so we, so we did all this shooting. And it was many, many years ago. It was, you know, so it was back in the days of the D200 is what I had then and that was the state of the art, you know, Nikon. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I, I took photos and we came back to his place and he said, so where are the shots that you took? And I gave him the card and there were 10 shots on the card. And he said, where's the rest? And I said, that's it. And he said, <laughs> he, said he said, you took 10, 10 shots. Like, well, there might not have even been 10, you know, like on my right. <laughs> So he said, you're freaking kidding me. Like, what the hell? And he said, you and you take photos like a large format film photographer. And that was right. what I was like, like, yeah. like, I've only got three shots left. That's right. That's <laughs> but I was like that, like I was so used to film that I was like, you've got to get it right in camera. You've got yeah. Right. And like I used to delete everything because before you learn a process, you don't know what you can do. So if anything wasn't perfect in camera, like on the, on the screen that I saw, I just delete it. And he was just like, fuck, you've deleted an exhibition, I'm sure of it. Um, <laughs> but anyway, he, he helped me print those first photos and then I, I went off and including the one of the Fagus that he, he so loved and, and, I, and I went into town and there was a, um, one of the leading landscape photographers who used to have a stall. At, we have this big market. It's quite it's Salamanca Market on Saturdays in, in Hobart. If you're ever here, you've you got to go to Salamanca and it's quite famous. And one of the guys used to sell his work down there and I – used to go down and pester him, you know, and just say, oh, you know, I'm starting to do photography. And then this day I had these actual photos that I'd taken. I went down, I showed him, I said, oh, Wolfie, look, you know, hey, this is what I do. And he said, oh, yeah, that's pretty cool. And then about six months later he said, do you want to exhibit with me? And I couldn't believe oh, it. Oh, man, like, that's amazing. Yeah, I was like, you kidding? I've never exhibited anything in my entire life. And, um, you know, I came second in a Hobart show when I was 10 embroidering some friggin' apron. And, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> And and he said, now I don't say. And and he, but he he. So he, we had this exhibition, and it had never been done before here. There's a huge gallery here called the Long Gallery at Salamanca in one of the warehouses. It's it's giant, and um, I don't know. It's it's the size of a warehouse. I don't know. I can't know how many feet long it is, but. He, um, four of us, like there were three other leading landscape photographers, Rob Blakers, Simon Olding and Wolfgang Glowacki, and the four of us exhibited. And the sort of the long, you know, my brain sort of goes a long way to make a point. But um, when we put these, our images up, we had like, sort of like about 25 images each. And mine were like um, big framed A1 size, whatever that is, you know, but they were fairly big, you know, it's framed. Yeah, um, what is that, like six, 16 by 20 or? Something like that, yeah. And, and Rob yeah. had even bigger ones because he was actually still using large format film. So he had his huge canvases. Um, Wolfies were about my size. And then Simon, who he did um, all um, black and white. He's uh, amazing, amazing guy. He's actually an amazing printer. He's the best printer in, ever. Um, he's my printer. Um, but we so we exhibited these. In we filled this long gallery, and we didn't put our our images all together. We we mixed them all up. So there was. Yeah, yeah. And what was really really interesting to me then, because I was just trying to take photos at that point. I was just trying to take something that was good enough to hang on a wall. 
you know, like I was completely self-taught, apart from the guy who taught me to use Photoshop. And he taught me in a very, very different way because he was a film photographer that had transferred his skills into the digital medium. So he taught me from the very word go to use luminosity masks before anyone had ever heard of Tony Kuiper. Oh, wow. The first thing he taught me is how to make my own luminosity mask. So he taught me to use tonality from the word go, um, which was beautiful. Um, But... But anyway, when we went, when we put all these images up in the long gallery and we mixed them all up and we walked, we walked around the exhibition, there were four distinct bodies of work. There were four distinct styles. And that's where I'm getting at because um, all of those people in myself included, our photography comes with a love of the place. And right. it comes from a deep, deep connection to the place. Like well, each one of those guys... You know, they will take you walking in the wilderness in Tasmania without a track um, for weeks, um, and you damn well better be fit. You know, like um, and but they are avid um, outdoor people, and they they operate a lot of like we've had this group in Tasmania, Nature Photographers of Tasmania, and um, one of the precepts behind that is that we put our work towards um, towards conservation. Oh yeah. Uh, so that's it comes from that, and the thing is that you could feel it, and you can feel the connection that each of us had in our own individual way, and that's why that's for me why there were distinct bodies of work because each of us develops our individual relationship with the place, and that's where if someone develops, if if what they if their relationship is something that they have developed, it's to me photography is like a meditative thing, that. It's partly an exploration of yourself because it's about how you connect to the landscape. It's not just about how the landscape is in a photographically technical sense. It's how you connect deep in yourself. And because of that, if you develop your photography from that, then, of course, you will have your unique style because that's no one else is going to have that relationship with the land. It's yours. Right. It's, it's your unique vision. Um, you know, I, I think I've discussed that actually with Mark Adamus as well um, because one of the things that I did a couple of his workshops, he's the only person whose workshops I've ever done, and um, it was something where I connected very strongly with Mark was that deep love of the wilderness and that need to be alone in it and um, that, that, that that is where meaningful photography comes from is, is when you develop... Um, your own connection with that place, and when you can go into somewhere where no one else has ever been, and and you can, um, you know, lose yourself and immerse yourself, and you know, and, and that's what he does time and time and time again. And then he takes everybody else there, and then you know, you got to find somewhere else. So, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, and then the place is destroyed. Yeah, yeah, and that that's another place. That's I mean, but that's what I would hope. Um, to try, I don't know how to how to escape that one. You know, like there's a there's a place in Tasmania that has now been discovered. Um, I have a really really great friend who is one of the greatest bushwalkers in Tasmania, and also an avid conservationist. He's a filmmaker. His name is Dan Brune, and um, there's a place in Tasmania that we have called the Western Arthurs, um, and the Western Arthurs. Um, uh, it's, it's one of the most difficult, it's, it's a really dangerous walk, um, but it's also this one of the most incredible um, glaciated landscapes in Australia. Um, it's, it's, 
and it's, and it's, it's a stunning, stunning landscape. One of the very famous early film photographers from Tasmania was a guy called Peter Dombrovskis, and he took an amazing photo from there, which has inspired a lot of the younger guys now to go there. And the problem is that when you get into our alpine areas where this is, there's very, very, very fragile flora. Um, and like 30 people walking um, on the same track will create a footpath. And then right. the groundwater will go along that footpath and erode it and cause massive erosion. And what's happened now is these guys went into the Western Arthurs and popularised it. And so, like, in there's, there's a track that goes along and the, the um, that goes along the route. And the parks have, you know, have recommendations and they basically have said very strongly that when people walk they should stick to the track, stick to the established camping areas to prevent the degradation of the place. But photographers have gone there and gone exploring. And of course. Above Lake Oberon, there is huge erosion. There's footpads all over the place. There's there's all this stuff. And the thing there is that with the alpine flora here, that will take decades to recover if it ever does. Well, um, it probably never will. Yeah, yeah. So, and how do you prevent that? Um, that's a really. really it's like yeah, it's like uh, you. But basically, you have to condemn ever sharing your work, which is silly. Exactly. Or you have to... Um, or make it super either, secret. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you either make some places known and 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 somehow um, either just sacrifice them or, or police them to a certain extent to, to try and keep people from... And then I hate that because... For me, I go into the wilderness and I don't want to see a fence. I don't want to see a sign. I don't want to see any of that shit. You know, right. I want the wilderness and I want to feel that it's wild. Um, so, yeah, then one of, the, one of the things that I have is um, one of the ways, I suppose they do it in Greenland as well, is to go on a boat. Um, oh, yeah, sure. You know, there's a place called Bathurst Harbour. Or to go somewhere that's very... Very not not easily accessible, and um, yeah, that somehow and, and and just hope to generate care. Like I, I have a workshop that I ran in a place called Bathurst Harbour, um, which is in southwest Tasmania. Um, and southwest Tasmania, the only way to get to Bathurst Harbour is to either fly, or to go by boat, or to walk for two weeks. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so so we fly in in this little light aircraft. Um, and and then we get on a yacht, um, which is an amazing uh, cutter. It's actually an ocean-going yacht, um, beautiful luxury yacht. And we stay on the yacht. Um, and basically, the the guys um, who who crew the yacht, um, we have an amazing crew, and they take us to different places, night and morning. And then I get out, and one of the other guys on the on the yacht, who who is a friend of mine, who's another photographer, we take the people who are on the workshop. Um, sort of for a half an hour, an hour's hike um, on, on, on tracks um, to a place and then photograph. And then we get back on the boat. So um, those places you can't just go to. You know, they're, they're, um, and it's an amazing place because when you're there, you are truly, it's, it's actually one of, it's, it's, it's another one of my pet things is to get people into a truly wild place, like incredibly wild, without them having to walk for two weeks. So I can get people who aren't super fit, who, who like to walk the Western Arthurs, you've got to be super fit and really strong. To, to go to Bathurst Harbour on a boat, you don't. So I can right, right. go there 
and, and, and actually be in that wild place and have an appreciation of what it is and bring that back to the world um, so that that can, you know, like a lot of that, a lot of preserving places is to raise awareness of places. Um, so, you know, it's a double-edged sword, um, but I think there are ways when you can, with, that you can appreciate wild places and not destroy them. Um, you just got to be really damn careful. And I think part of it is that um, the general, you know, the majority of people you can channel to certain places, um, and then yes, the others you leave much more secret. Right. It's almost like you have to make some sacrifices. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean like, on the here over- in Southwest, you know, it's like there's tons of sacrifices that have happened here. You know, you've got Mesa Arch, and you've got Lower Antelope Canyon, and you've got you know, there's just tons of places where people like their trophies, and yeah. and I'll, I say let those people have their trophies. I'm I'm more interested in, but there, I mean, there's a reason why those places are popular because they're incredible places. But you know, like there's no part of me that is interested in going and standing next to 40 other people to take the same photo. Like that just there's that, something about that that just <laughs> it's just counter counter to why I even do this stuff. You know. I read a really beautiful article recently that Guy Tal wrote. Beautiful and very sad. And it was about that tree, you know, in the desert. Oh, yeah, yeah, I read that. Yeah, yeah. Um, the death of yeah, a I'm actually, Yeah, I'm actually going to have him on the podcast next week. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's someone who I greatly admire. And, um, and again, he, you know, like it's also to um, instill, I don't know. I don't know how you instill it in people, other than like guys writing is a huge inspiration for me, because he does impart to those who will listen. He imparts the sense of the artistry, um, you know, the artist, you know, photographer. Not so that um, you know the inspiration to go and to create something from an alchemy that happens within you and what's around you rather than to go and to copy something, you know. And, um, you know, that is that is a very, very important thing, you know. I, no, I, I agree. I, I, had to, I had to figure that out the hard way because um, I lived in Portland for a couple of years and when I first moved there, I didn't really know anything about the area except, you know, what, I've, what I saw online and, and so, of course, you know, you look look on 500px or Flickr for, like, different locations that are inspiring. And then, of course, you're like, oh, that looks like a great place. I'm going to go shoot that. And it, I feel like it's this weird trap, though, if you just chase other people's photos because it, like, it diminishes uh, your connection to the process a little bit. Because when you're going there, like, I went, I, I had that exactly happen, and I was horrified by it. Like, because... I, I, you know, I told you a little bit about what happened to me in Ladakh um, and my process there was, you know, I'd never seen any photos of the place and so every night and every morning it was like doing it on the fly and connecting and connecting and connecting and connecting and doing stuff that I'd never seen before um, and I love that. But Absolutely. Then, yeah, and then I, I went, the very first time I went to Glacier National Park, um, I think I had seen one or two photos from Glacier National Park. A friend of mine, Daniel Hewitt, had posted one, and it wasn't the photo so much that I liked, although it was a lovely photo, but it was more the type of place that it looked like. 
You know, I thought, yeah. oh, shit, I go there. And, and he, he did this description of how he'd walked for three hours in the dark to get <laughs> – He'd gone one day, you know, one in the middle of the day, he'd gone to this place and he thought, oh, this would make a really good dawn location. So then he got up and he, he had to walk for three hours in the dark to get there at dawn. And so he's walking in the dark and, and he's thinking to himself, shit, I'm going to get attacked by a bear. You know, like he's just freaking out about the bears and the, you know, whatever else because he's realising that it's really dodgy in that neck of the woods to be walking around by yourself in the dark. And so he's really like freaking – and then he heard this incredible noise on the on the path in front of him and he was like, for sure I'm just about to die, you know, and, and it was a moose. Um, and he was really lucky because I have read that actually moose kill more people than bears um, each yeah, year in crazy. the United States. Yeah, but the moose wasn't interested in him, which was really fortunate. But So I was having – I had great fun reading his description and reading all his, his whole adventure in that, but I thought I really want to go to Gracia. You know, because it sounds like a cool place. And, and when I went there, I went there on my own and I'd done very little um, research, which was my bad. You know, I, I should, probably should have done more. Um, I'd done a little bit, but um, I sort of wanted to explore. That's me. Like, I like sure. And I, I, I didn't want to take other people's photos. I wanted to take stuff that spoke to me. And so, in a sense, that's a fun thing is to go to a place, even a well-known place, without looking at anything. You know, without... Yeah. Doing that research, just go there and see what speaks to you. Um, yeah, I just did that this last weekend. I did a um, buddy of mine is doing the full Colorado Trail. It's like you know about four hundred miles or whatever, and so I met up with him and did a section of it for eighteen miles. And I didn't do any research about what was on that section. And it was cool, like just coming across different areas and like, oh, this is this is amazing. I had no idea this was here. <laughs> you know. That's that's such a joy to do that. It's, yeah, it's just well, I did that. I went to and there was one one place that I definitely hadn't seen any photos of because it was a complete surprise to me that it even existed. Was and I I went there because all the camping grounds were full at a certain point and I had this crazy time trying to find somewhere to camp. That when I first got that was hilarious, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I ended up at um, Avalanche um, Canyon and. Uh, and I'd never seen anything, and but I, I sort of so I went for this wander in up Avalanche Canyon, and I fell in love with this place. I was like, "Fuck, this is awesome!" Like this incredible, this red rock, and the way that it curves around, and there's all these amazing shapes, and there's this beautiful forest all around it, and and I just started. I just had this whole day where I wandered around and just fell in love with it, and then and I remember going back to the campground, and um, and I was going to go back like later in the day when it wasn't the sun wasn't overhead, and the guy in the campground said, "Oh." Um, just be careful when you go up there because um, because of the cougar. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, what cougar? You're like, whoops. That's right. I mean, I come from Tasmania and the biggest animals we hear, have here are like wombats and they're like, you know, they're, they're, they're not large um, and they, don't, they try and don't try and eat you, they eat grass. And, <laughs> and so I'm not used to things. We have snakes and there's all sorts of things that you guys in America freak out about and I don't, but... But um, but we don't have large animals that want you for dinner. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, so so that was a whole new thing for me to be in a place where there's large animals where you're not the top of the food chain, and um, and so I think okay, Kugo, excellent. And then I already knew about bears because I'd already read up on about bears because I knew it was a bear place and how not to get eaten by bears, which was basically not to do all the things I was going to do. <laughs> you know, so- <laughs> yeah, like don't don't go out late at night by yourself. Right. Right, that's right. All those things, I think, okay, I might as well just go out with a sign that says dinner here, you know, like, and, <laughs> right. 
<laughs> anyway, so and then I thought, okay, you're not meant to surprise bears, so you're meant to make noise, you know, and sing and, and, and clap your hands and all that sort of stuff. But then I thought, okay, if I do that, the cougar is just going to say, hey, yeah, there she is. So, no, no. <laughs> no, you're screwed either way, right? Yeah, that's right. So I thought, I'm just going to go and be done with it. You know, if it's my time, it's my time. And um, So what, what was it like... Um... What was it like growing up um, in the in the uh, in the Australian bush? Because that sounds pretty remote. <laughs> um, I, I well, I mean, I didn't have something to compare it with because that's where I grew up. But um, yeah, yeah, I was really lucky as well because the ear it, it, it's not as easy now in the sense that um, in when I grew up, my parents. Um, were a lot more okay with me hurting myself than people are these days. Oh, sure. So I, like, I grew up, um, I would spend all day, even when I was, like, seven years old, I would spend all day out in in a, in a bush run by myself on a horse. Huh. And and I was allowed to do that. Um, and, 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 um... These days, that wouldn't that would be unheard of, you know. Like, right, like they'd be like, oh, "We're gonna come take your kids away." Yeah, yes, but also I was like, I was on my own, and I was over thousands and thousands of acres, um, you know, like, and and um, like if I'd have fallen off, the horse probably would have come back without me, and so they would have known that I was out there somewhere. But um, right, but not where. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, so I was really lucky in that respect that I got to be out there on my own and I got to be exploring and I got to be able to do it with an animal as well, which, and I, you know, like um, that thing about opening up and forming a relationship with place, maybe one of the ways that that happened with me very, very, very early. I, my mum, this, this is going really early because my mum learned to ride when she was pregnant with me. Now I have a... I ride horses, as in, and I have a, a theory that that's why I was born wanting to ride a horse. Like from the very earliest memory that I have, you know, when you when you articulate anything, your parents ask you as as early as possible. You know, they say to you, "What do you want Santa to bring you for Christmas?" And um, and I just said a horse from the very word go. Like from when I was two, you know, I said I want a horse. That was it. Ho- Didn't horse was before. your horse was your first word. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah, I want a horse, and I was. I was going to riding school when I was like two years old, um, and the, and my my parents always said to me, no, 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 you know, you're too young, and um, and so that was their excuse. They're, they're like, why well, I couldn't have a horse yet. And when I was four, we went to this show, the Deloraine show, it's a little country town show, and there was this girl there on the Shetland pony, and um, it was her pony, and I went up to her and I and I talked to her and I said, how old are you? And she said four, and I was four, and I went back to my parents and said, I'm four, she's four, and she's got a horse. She- <laughs> so. <laughs> I'm old enough now, you know. Like, <laughs> right. This, this, um, so I was, uh, I was like, grew up like, and when I was like, I was going to this riding school, like I said, when I was two, and they didn't have saddles that were small enough. So I used to, I learned to ride bareback. Huh. So when you ride bareback, it's you on the horse and you feel each other, you know. And yeah. I always loved animals. And my my ideal, I had this dream when I was really really young as well, that I was riding this horse and. Everything that we did was telepathic. Everything that we did, like I thought, let's trot, and the horse trotted. I thought, let's turn left, and the horse turned left. And that dream, like I have dreams every now and again that I remember from my whole life, and that was one of them. And and that dream was my ideal in riding horses, is that we would have this incredibly close communication um, of me and that horse, like that was my friend. Um, And my horse was always my friend. So when you're riding bareback, 
with your friend, that physical um, contact allows you to feel each other in a way that is unique. Um, and to me, there's, a, there's like a roller door, if you like, in your mind. And if you bring it up, you can allow the outside in. And, and so th not only did I have that communication with my horse, but in a sense, that roller door in my mind went up. And so I would feel the, the, the wilderness around me. I would feel the trees as I walked past them. And that sounds like I'm schizophrenic, but I'm not. I'm well, psychotic, but, you know. <laughs> it's, hey, it's, you know, I have, a, I have a master's degree in clinical psychology. I think you're, you're, you're okay. <laughs> Excellent. But that's what happened. And I remember it's easier as a child because I remember galloping my horse, um, you know, through the bush and jumping. And I was bareback and ju jumping logs and jumping fallen trees, but having the wind going straight through me. And having the, the, the sense and the feel, feeling of the place around me within my own head and that connection to the place. Yeah, it seems like if you have an early exposure to that as a person, it, it, I feel like that, that it really accentuates a person's ability to really appreciate when they're in those moments. Because I think there's a part of it that kind of takes them back to the first time they experienced it. You know what I mean? And one of the things about that is that like when you learn to ski or you learn to do something that's a little bit dangerous when you're young, you have no fear. And when you're in the, when you're in the wilderness as a young person, I had zero fear. Like right. I, was, I wasn't afraid of them. I knew that they might bite and I knew that how to behave towards them. But that was just a, okay, let's get to know each other thing. I had zero fear. And the other thing that I had was that I just loved it. Um, so fear and love together, or lack of fear rather, and love together, um, create a huge highway for you to connect to a, pl to, to a place. And that I think is one of the things that um, is a key in getting people also to start to connect to place is to remove their fear. Because in my um, experience, the majority of people don't grow up in the country like I did. The majority of people don't grow up being, like, because the, the place, like, when I close my eyes, when I go into the wilderness and I'm alone in an incredibly wild place miles away from anywhere, days walk away from anywhere, I am totally at peace. That is, that is my place. That is where I'm at home. Because, and that has a lot to do with me being there when I was a very young child. It's Absolutely. Like, right? and, and so one of the things that um, most people have is that they're more at home in a city. They're more at home in a street. They're more, you know, the places where they were a child and where they grew up learning all of the all of the ways to survive in that field is where they are deeply at home. And one of the things that I find is that when people haven't grown up in wilderness and they go out into wilderness or even they think about going out into wilderness, fear is immediately part of the equation. For so what's your what's your comfort level for big cities? <laughs> Huh. <laughs> <laughs> now there's a thought. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm. Uh, well, I'm. A... I I really don't like big cities personally. I mean, I, I lived in Portland for two years, and that was about as big as I I could do. It's, yeah. You know, like the all the noise and like being surrounded by people is just it just wears on me psychologically. Yeah. yeah, same here. Um, I can't like I can. I'm, I have a certain amount of reckless courage, I think, or, or something crazy like that, because I will 
go and spend time. And when I go into big cities, I tend to want to experience nitty-gritty, or I used to. I mean, I lived in the Woolloomooloo squats in Sydney when I was, um, you know, a teenager. Um, and that's where, you know, that's full on. I mean, that's that's just me wanting to experience the extremes of life. But yes. um, but for any, any, any extended period of time, um, I need to have silence. I, I can't be in a place with that much noise. Um, it's the noise, ultimately, that drives me nuts. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I don't have the skills, and not only that, but I don't have the desire to acquire the skills. Right. Big city. You know? No, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I that live in Melbourne, and I'm, I'm, I moved here. I moved from the country. Like I've been living in the country for sixteen years. In in like whoop whoop, you know, like in different places. I'm a nomad. I, I've lived in. I've moved like thirty something times in thirty years. You know, I, I'm I'm a crazy gypsy person, and um, but. But the last 16 years have been out in the sticks. You know, I lived in central Victoria out in the middle of Whoop Whoop and then I lived, um, you know, out of the town here. And um, But then I, I, in April I moved back into town and I'm, I'm actually 10 minutes walk from the centre of Hobart, which is the capital of Tasmania. But Hobart in terms of cities is pretty damn small, you know. Sure, I mean, sure. all Tasmania has a population of 500,000 people. So, you know, Hobart isn't, isn't a huge city. But... Um, but I'm actually really enjoying it. But the thing that I enjoy too is that from even though I live 10 minutes walk from the middle of the city, there's a big mountain that Hobart sits right sort of next to. And in um, 20 minutes walk in the opposite direction, I can be on the mountain and then I can be in the w- middle of wilderness. And I have a park behind me and I have a rivulet in front of me with trees and so I have a really quiet spot. So for me, the lack of noise is essential. Um, and... Um, a place where I can feel at peace. Ultimately, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Tibetan Buddhist, as I said before, and my realisation is that that quiet place, that silence that I crave, um, I can also keep as a flame within myself. And the ultimate goal is that within myself I can find that wherever I am. Um, but at the moment, I'm not quite that evolved, so I need to have it around me. So, <laughs> so from here, I can easily go into place. I mean, Tasmania, one of the reasons that I came to live here and that I enjoy living here to some extent is that I can be on a mountain in the morning and the, and the beach in the afternoon, and I can be alone in both of them. Yeah, um, so is that, that mountain that you're close to, is that Mount Wellington? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, it's, you know, there's, and we have low mountains because the mountains here are very, very old, and uh-huh. they've been worn down. They're ancient, you know. So um, they're nowhere near. They're not pointy things like you have. They, they, sure. <laughs> they but they have incredible presence. And they yeah, have, you've got a photograph of um, Mount Wellington on your website called Piercing. That's like I was immediately drawn to it because I just love the the light in that photo. And just I don't know. It just reminds me of some of the stuff we have here in Colorado. I was impressed by that. I was like, oh, that looks like a sweet spot. Yeah, and that's – it is. And that's ha- being able to have that, like if tomorrow mo- – like I think I, I decided I, one night, like the night – I had to do it the night before, but I decided oh, I'm going to go up the mountain in the morning. And so – and I can – I was living actually further than I am now, but um, from here from the middle of the city, I can drive up to there in about um, 20 minutes and then I can get out of my car and, and walk for about half an hour to where I took that photo from. 
Um, and that, so that's incredibly accessible. But at the same time, because I'm walking, as soon as you get out and you walk more than five minutes, you lose everybody. Yeah. And you get to that's that. awesome. Place. Yeah. And you get to that place and hardly anybody goes there. Yeah, I feel like I don't know much about Tasmania. I'm just kind of looking online on the Google Maps. It's bigger than I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> it's an incredibly diverse place. I mean, I want to leave here because I want to actually do more with making a living with photography. And um, and there's, the, the population base here is really low. And um, I want to, you know, so I want to actually bounce out. But in terms of coming and visiting here... This place has an incredible diversity and an incredible wildness that very few places have these days. Um, as I said, the whole village, the whole village, the whole island has a population of like five hundred thousand. Um, about um, easily, easily a third of the state is is actually protected wilderness. Yeah, it looks like it's mostly wilderness. Yeah, yeah, and in in the southwest, like that's serious wilderness, like. Um, you know, like some of it is just really, really, really difficult to access, um, which is great because, it, you know, like one when I came down here from central Victoria after one of my wanders, you know, Tasmanians like boomerang, they go and they come back and they go and they come back. So Right, right, right. I came back and I and I wanted, it was New Year's Eve, um, or it was going to be New Year's Eve and I had some time off um, my, my other job that, that pays my bills and, and I thought I want to go into the wilderness and I don't want to be around people. And I thought, but Jesus, you know, New Year here is summer. And New Year's Eve, like, everyone's got off, everyone goes out, and there's people all over the place in the wilderness. And it's like, God, you know, I don't I don't want to be with all of that. And I thought, okay, how can I get somewhere where there's no people? And I just thought, oh, I'd just go somewhere a little bit difficult. And yeah, so, exactly. And, and so I did. I went up to this place called um, Mount La Perouse, and, um, and that was in the southwest wilderness. And, and there were a couple of other people there that I saw um, – and they were the sort of people that it was okay to, to see because they were, you know, to just they're, they're, just by being the virtue of that they were there. Um, they, were, they were people that didn't impinge on my headspace. Um, they, were, they were nice people. They weren't. Right, and they're probably the kind of like-minded too. Like they're up there for the same kind of reasons. Exactly. But so Tasmania, you can do that. If you're prepared to do something a little bit difficult, you can get to an incredible place where there will be very few other, if not no other people. Um, and I mean like that that's part of the joy and it's part of what so I'm not used to standing with 30 other photographers you know yeah. go to Cradle Mountain you might get that every now and again but like go to Mount La Perouse and um, and you will not but you will go to a place like I it, there's a feeling that you get um, and you get the opposite in cities I lived in Melbourne and I remember going in Brunswick where I used to live which is an inner city suburb going out and closing my eyes and I could feel that around me for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles there was concrete and people. Yeah. You know? And when I when I came back from Central Victoria and I went to this place to Mount La Perouse, it, it was a, a couple of days of getting there was pretty hard. Like I, I went like I did almost vertical work, walk of about three hours through an incredible rainforest and then it flattened out for 15 minutes and I thought, oh, thank God I'm up that and then I went back up for another hour. And then I went through um, some, some um, tea tree and, and scrub that was really hard to get through. And then there were like um, innocent-looking puddles that I managed to put to walk through on the trail and went into my thighs in mud. Um, so I thought <laughs> I deep mud experiences. And, and then 
camped in this really shitty little camp, little place. There was only you could only space to put one tent, and it was really higgledy piggledy and damp, and and you couldn't see anything. And I was like, at that point, I was like, why the hell am I doing this? What am I doing here? <laughs> and then I got up the next day, and I walked up for about half an hour, and I came up and I came into this place with these plants called pandanis, and they are plants from Gondwana land that are ancient. Um, they are these amazing, like strappy sort of plants. So they're like nothing else. And and I came into this area that was like a pandanic garden, and they, they're as tall as I am. Some of them, or some of them are lower. And and from that place, it was a beautiful day, and I could see this mountain range um, in northern Tasmania, or no, no sorry, central Tasmania, and, and part of the southwest. I could see Frenchman's Cap, all these distinctive peaks. And then I, I walked a little bit further up and I could see the south coast. I looked down and there was the south coast of Tasmania and the next stop is Antarctica. And there was nobody. And there was this... And then on all the plants around me were these ancient, ancient plants that were relics of the supercontinent Gondwana land. And, when I, and then I walked and I walked along this ridgeline that was, was three hills that I traversed that are in, in someone's really imaginative... Um, sort of spree they're called hill one hill two and hill three so that's all that's it you know who, who named them that i have no idea but so you traverse these hills and then you go to mount laparuse and i climbed up mount laparuse and i was up on top of mount laparuse and i'd only walked for a couple of days you know less than a couple of days really if you added it all up and i stood there and and there and a light plane came flying above me and dipped its wings and i waved and it was like we were the only two in the entire world of that moment. And That's it was awesome. An incredible moment. And the thing is that when I closed my eyes, I could feel that all around me, for miles, I was deeply, deeply into this wild, wild place. And I wasn't just transported in place. I was actually transported in time. Because all around me, there was the flora of an ancient place. That was that had been there for for many many centuries, um, you know, since the supercontinent. Um, these are alpine places that have never been burned, um, and and just an incredible trans transportation um, into 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 these places. So that's what Tasmania can offer. It can offer you that experience, and it's not that difficult to get. And you don't get that in very many places. Yeah, are you um, are you familiar with uh, Dylan Gelkin? Yes, I actually had an interesting conversation with Dylan Gilkin um, recently. Okay, yeah, I've been following him for a long time, and I've always really liked his work because he—I think he's in Australia. He is. He is, and he's—he's he's actually one of the people that came to the Western Arthurs based on my friend's directions. Okay. So Dylan yeah. takes some incredible photos. Yeah. Uh, that are that are really awesome. Um, uh. Yeah, um, he probably won't get directions to a lot of the other places in Tasmania that my friend knows. Um, Roger that. <laughs> yeah, um, his, his his images are awesome, and since he and a couple of others came to that place, um, it has, as I said before, it has it suffered extensive damage. Oh. Um, um, one of the one of the things that, and and like as I said, Dylan takes beautiful images. But um, one of the things that I would inspire in people who go to these places is to also learn about the places, not just to take the images, but to learn about the fragility of them, about right. um, how to preserve them, about their integrity, 
Um, yeah, it's a tough balance because I feel like um, it it's it's such a uh, contradiction of concepts. I feel like it's really hard to do both. Mm. Mm. Um, it's well, one of the things that I think it comes from is what is in yourself that is connected to the landscape. If yeah, you, yeah, yeah. you coming away with a great photograph, then I fear for the landscape. Right. Well, and I think that's the majority of people right now, unfortunately. Yes, that's right. And that's where I would love to, with workshops and with, with teaching, do, like, like Paul Ziska said, actually inspire people to connect to place, um, to inspire them to, yes, take great photographs, but to protect the place as well because, and to have some feeling and some humility of, yeah. of, you know, for that place. Um, there was a beautiful, in, in, in Barry Lopez's writing, he talks about bowing to the, um, the, the, the birds in, on the tundra um, who are sitting over their nests, resolute as he walked on his, as he went for walks amongst them in the Arctic. And um, he had an incredible respect for their fecundity in such a place and for the spirits of, of just their being there. Um, yeah. And for the integrity of the land, um, and his relationship with the place was actually about how it affected him deeply. Um, and I would love to inspire that in in, um, in in people who, as I said, I think it's it's part of that ongoing journey because if you go with the intention of taking a great photograph of a place, and that is your motivating factor you're going to produce chocolate box photography. You might get 6,000 likes on Instagram. You might get a whole heap of followers, but it will have no soul. If you well, go it's, it's funny, though, because um, I feel like the just because of how accessible um, photography is now, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent, which I, I'm a, you know, you said earlier, like, I, I think it's great that more and more people are getting in the outdoors and all that stuff, but... I feel like because of that, um, the the value of the photograph has diminished, and the way that people that see themselves as artists are adapting to that are they're they're more focused on how they can monetize their yeah. knowledge um, or their work in other ways, such as teaching workshops or taking people to these places or or get, helping people get their trophies or or yeah. like writing guidebooks about certain locations and i feel like it's it's kind of like a ah, it's i don't know how you stop that it's yeah. well, I, think, you, I don't fault people for it like if that's how you make money like you got to do something but I, I understand people developing a passion getting into the outdoors developing a passion for it and then wanting to make it their lives you know and so then they think okay how can i make money how can i make a living out of this and then right. they that stuff that you're talking about. Um, in a sense, I think that we're in an incredibly exciting area because of um, the the you know the popularity of photography of landscape photography. That that there's an exciting there's exciting possibilities in that for um, going steps further. Um, and I think um, one of the things that I that it would be really exciting to see. Um, I think we're in a part, place on the earth where um, it's coming to crunch time. 
you know, there are there is incredible, um, incredibly um, dangerous. Or well, that's probably the wrong word, but but there's stuff happening to the planet. That means there's stuff being destroyed. Right, it's alarming. Yeah, it's very alarming, and um, and it's getting to a time when whole ecosystems are going to be starting to collapse. Um, when huge things that that places in the landscape that we um, that we go to are going to cease to exist. You know, everyone's going to Greenland at the moment. I mean, how long is the ice going to be there? You know, everyone. Um, and what um, I would what what we ha- what we stand on the brink of is a possibility with landscape photography of um, getting more and more and more people to actually generate awareness um, of the fragility of these landscapes and of the importance of preserving them. Um, and you have to, people have to be inspired to care, um, but well, I think... Photography is a great medium for that. Exactly, exactly. I mean, um, I do see a lot of people going and running workshops in a lot of these places that I see is really endangered, like especially the Arctic landscapes. Sure. Um, and... My, um, I think there is a, there is a potential there, for those workshops and people like Paul Zisco. I mean, when you you telling me that today has actually made my day, because you know people like that. The more people like that, that actually want to inspire caring in the people that they take there, then the more impetus that snowball can have to creating a, a wider and wider and wider section of the population that care enough to do something about it to save it. No, I, I agree. I, I feel like we could probably talk about this for hours. Yeah. But if we want the podcast to not be 10 hours long, I'm going to have to cut us short and ask you the last question. <laughs> we talked that long. God. Yeah, man. Uh, it's been great. Like, like, so, like I said, we could talk for hours. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I like to ask everyone is um, if, if you were um, scrolling through the podcast and you saw someone's name, um, who would you be super excited to listen to on the podcast? Oh, now, you know, um, there's someone who, whose work I have, um, been following for a little while and he really excites me. His work is not pretentious, it's authentic and he has a really beautiful feeling for the places that he goes to. Um, and, and he started doing vlogs, which I actually saw the first one of the other day. The first time I'd heard the term, a vlog, you know. So, um, oh, uh-huh. so he does these video logs, you know, the vlog. Um, and um, and his name is Adam Gibbs. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, I know Adam Gibbs. I really, really like Adam's work and I like his um, connection to place. And I like, um, yeah, like I said, he, he has... Um, authentic beautiful photography um and i and yeah i'd love to to listen to adam yeah cool yeah i'll definitely have to reach out to him for sure yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) if you want me to say more than one i can but adam to me is is on my mind because i i because of recently looking at his vlog and he's not someone you know i could mention a whole lot of names that we all know really really well um but um adam stands out for me in that um, I'm really moved by his work and he's probably not one of those people that um, is has been known about for a long, long time by everybody, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it would be – and it would be really interesting to, to hear his thoughts on some stuff. 
Cool, yeah, I'll definitely check it out. Um, well, hey, Hillary, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really cool uh, having a chat about these topics. Uh, I feel like we have a lot of, our ph- philosophy is very similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's been a joy. Um, I, I, like I said, I could talk to you for a long, long time. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, just call me. 